everybody. Good to be back again with you. Thank you for leading us, Simon. And uh, Mitch, for the welcome again. It's great to have been here. It's hard to believe eight weeks have gone by. Um, only one more for me. And uh, thank you for attending. Some of you have been here every week that you have been able. And uh, we don't underestimate that. So thanks for coming. And for some of you, it's your first night. And you're equally welcome. So um, I'm not going to recap over everything that we've been doing. It would be good for you to catch up and look on the website and find out where we've come from to get here. But tonight I want us to consider, we're looking at Revival Now, if you haven't already realized it, as a subject which effectively is asking the question, what kind of revival do we need? And what could revival look like? And we're not just using conjecture, we hope, um, it is my prayer and indeed my consideration that actually we are hearing from God and what I'm bringing to you, though it's more thematic than Bible studies each night, I hope we're hearing from God's heart as to what he wants to do among us today. So Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere and do what you want to do with us and speak with the voice that wakens the dead and may your people hear. Amen. Tonight we're considering that we need a new disciple-making movement. And again, let me just clarify, each night we've been talking about a particular movement. We're not talking about an organization. We're talking about a move of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that we need a new discipleship-making movement. We're going to read from John 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35 to the end of the chapter. So that's John 1, 35 to 51. Verse 35 then. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, he walked and said, Behold, as, as Jesus walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to see Jesus. It says, first of all, he found him, then it says he brought him to see Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said 
to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Moses, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I think it was the second week of our series, Revival Now, that we looked at how we need a new prayer movement. And uh, we labored a little bit how in historic revivals, which we're not using them as models, um, but generally speaking, before God revives, he sets people praying. And um, along with preceding prayer, I want to suggest to you tonight that the next most common external factor of historic revivals is the preaching of the gospel. Renewal in the church may not necessarily feature many souls being saved, but revival certainly does. In every classic revival, there are widespread salvations. And again, we don't want to get caught up with the past, but it's, it's instructive to us. And in 1859, we've heard a lot about it around this building, and Mitch has filled this in on a lot of wonderful detail about it. But 1859, of course, was known as the Year of Grace. And within that 12-month period, there were somewhere, somewhere around 100,000 people came to know Jesus. What a Year of Grace that was indeed. But I think maybe better than the name Revival, because it gets a bit mixed up with renewal in the church and so on, the word awakening is more apt to describe how when a Holy Spirit revival comes, not only is the church renewed and restored, but there is an awakening to salvation. There is, in the community, transformational effect. The world is different. The world around us. And so I want to suggest to you tonight that we need a new disciple-making movement. But for there to be discipleship, we must be preaching the gospel, isn't that right? So my first point tonight is that we need to preach the gospel of the kingdom in Holy Spirit power. We need to preach the gospel of the kingdom in Holy Spirit power. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, Mitch has already read to us about the day of Pentecost. But you remember that Pentecostal sermon on the birthday of the church in verse 37 as a response to the preaching of the word it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That is conviction. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that is a response where conviction comes and there is conversion. Conversion of the heart in the sense of the heart is turned around to God and they're asking the question, what do we do now? Now, there was within the New Testament, I want you to remember this, gossiping the gospel. This kind of open-air preaching was probably the exception. The most common way that the gospel spread was through ordinary conversation and come and see kind of language that we read in John chapter 1. 
But there is the, what we call the apostolic kerygma. And that's quite a fancy word. It's a Greek word, but just it's the, the message that was heralded. That's what it means. The kerygma. The heralding forth a public proclamation of the message of God, the good news. And we need to get back to that as the church. This is what changed the known world. 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul said, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. God has ordained the kerygma, or the evangel is another word. That's why we're evangelistic. Because we herald the evangel, which is the message of good news that saves souls. That is what God has ordained to bring salvation. And we need to stop replacing the preaching of the gospel for other things in the church. And we need to stop diluting the preaching of the gospel. What effectively that does when we renege on the kerygma is it shows a lack of faith in the power of the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000 souls saved and there was only one sermon. And we have 3,000 sermons and don't even see one person saved. Ian Bounds, who is one of the greatest writers I've ever read on the subject of prayer, but I think the best book I've ever read on preaching is a book on prayer by E.M. Bounds, Power Through Prayer. I don't know whether any of you have ever read it. But you can get a compilation of all E.M. Bounds' writings on prayer. Uh, Whitaker Publications do it. It's only about eight pounds for all of his writings on prayer. Wonderful writer. But he said this, listen. No erudition, no purity of diction, no wealth of mental outlook, no flowers of elegance, no grace of person can atone for lack of fire. We need to get back to Holy Spirit fire in our preaching of the gospel. And that's not just enthusiasm or emotionalism, but actually it can be quiet preaching, but infused by the the anointing and the unction of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The, the, the evangelical conservative wing of the church in particular is choking with words. But there is very little power, even in the conclaves of those who claim to have the Holy Spirit power. There's very little power with signs following the preaching of the gospel. Yet Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 again, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So there was a testimony of them, those who were bringing the message, but there was a demonstration of power so that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men and women, but on the, on the, the authenticity of God's demonstration through the Holy Spirit. Henry Ward Beecher put it like this, I should as soon attempt to raise flowers if there were no atmosphere, or produce fruits if there were neither light nor heat, as to regenerate men if I did not believe that there was a Holy Ghost. Can't be done. That which is of the flesh is what? Flesh. But that which is of the Spirit is Spirit. And so we need to get back to preaching the gospel, but not just the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom is 
preach the good news, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, and cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. It is this power of evangelism, and I believe in that. I believe we need to see more of it. And especially as we are in a post-Christian society, we're in such an antichrist, new age, spiritualistic ether that we need people to know that our God reigns and our God is alive and our God is the God whose hand is not short that it cannot save, whose ear is not dull that it cannot hear. Our God is the God of the supernatural. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the promise was given by our Lord, wasn't it, before his ascension, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So the connection with the giving of power is not so as we'll have thrills and spills in in the sanctuary. The giving of power is that we would be witnesses. And the witness word in Greek actually is similar to the the word for martyr, that we will actually go and take up our cross and, and preach the gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of power and love. To the whole world. And Mark's version of the Great Commission um, says, These signs will follow those who believe. I think they're believing believers, people who really take God's word and believe God does these things. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will receive. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. There's always a connection between the outpouring of the Spirit and the glorification of Jesus at the ascension. But listen to this verse. They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. That's the Acts of the Apostles. That's a summary right there of the Acts of the Apostles. That they went out and preached the word after the ascension of Jesus, after the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost, 40 days after the ascension of Jesus, 50 days after the ascension of Jesus. They experienced this power that endued them to go forth. Now, where is that power? And I don't care whether you're Pentecostal or charismatic or whatever. Where is this power? There were 40 miracles that I think are recorded in the book of Acts. And do you know that 39 of those miracles took place in the marketplace? The disciples in the upper room hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind and tongues as of fire came upon their heads. But what the Holy Spirit did a few moments after that was to flush them out onto the street. Think about that. They were hiding for fear behind locked doors. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he pushes us out of our comfort zone. A.J. Gordon said, whenever in any century, whether in a single heart or in a company of believers, there has been a fresh effusion of the Spirit, there has followed inevitably a fresh endeavor in the work of evangelizing the world. 
And so from the upper room, the wind and the fire, the irresistible, uncontrollable, unpredictable power of the Holy Spirit spread. F.F. Bruce entitled his book detailing the rise and progress of Christianity from its first beginnings, The Spreading Flame. Because that's exactly what it was. A raging furnace. And what else but a fire baptism could have transformed those trembling disciples to ministers of a flame of fire who would turn the world upside down. Acts 17, 8 says. Only the power of the gospel of the kingdom endued with the Holy Spirit's anointing. Now, I'm I'm preaching to the choir here, um, but we're asking the church at large, where has our evangelism gone in the church? Where has the emphasis on world missions gone? And because we have lost an evangelistic vision, the people are perishing. Today, nine of every ten people in the world are lost. Let that sink in. Nine out of every ten are lost. And of those nine, six have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And of those six, three of those six have no one to tell them. Here's a question for you. What is 750,000 miles long? It reaches around the earth 30 times and it grows 20 miles longer each day. That's the line of people who are without Christ in the world. Around the world 30 times and grows 20 miles longer every day. A.B. Simpson said 100,000 souls a day are passing one by one away in Christless guilt and gloom without one ray of hope or light with future dark and endless night they're passing to their doom. And the honest truth from my heart to yours is tonight, most of the time, I don't really care. Just being honest with you. And can I make a suggestion here? I'm not entering in, well, I am entering into a bit of controversy, but hell has disappeared from the church. Now, I'm not suggesting to you what hell is. I think that's a huge subject, and Scripture has got contradictory images, fire and darkness and all types of things, and we could have a wonderful discussion about what it is. But Jesus talked a lot about it. And what modern Christianity has done has airbrushed hell completely out of our message. Now, granted, it is the love of Christ that compels us. It must be, it should be love that motivates us. We should be talking about the love of Christ. I don't think that primarily hell, fire, and damnation preaching really does an awful lot of good for us. But there's definitely something of the edge of the urgency of the dynamic of going with the gospel if you don't have a knowledge that there is such an existence of being without Christ forever. And it would surprise you over the last decade how many have conveniently disposed 
of the doctrine of hell. We wonder why there's no evangelistic urgency. Why there's no emergency. People say, oh, but it should be, it should be enough for the love of Jesus. Yeah, but does the love of Jesus not get even greater when I realize what, what he saved me from and also what he endured himself? Because he took our hell. Whatever it means for every soul to endure an eternal hell, Jesus took in three short hours on the cross within himself. And he was the perfect son of God. So that is absolute holiness meeting absolute unholiness. Who can understand it? Don Curry served in the Sindh desert region of Pakistan with the Bible and Medical Missionary Fellowship and he was a doctor with a keen interest in community health and tribal evangelism. And with his wife Nancy, he visited a village of animists worshipping idols and ancestors and so on, and uh, he told them the story of Jesus. And they were intrigued with Christ's teaching, particularly on love and forgiveness, and deeply moved by his compassionate ministry among them as a physician. And um, when they heard about the death of Jesus and his resurrection, they were deeply moved. And someone asked Don, when did this happen? 10 or 15 years ago? And Don replied, no, it took place almost 2,000 years ago. And the man looked at him incredulously and said, what terrible thing have we done that God should have kept this wonderful story from us for so long? Of course, we know it wasn't God. David Pawson said the gospel will not save anyone by being preserved. It must be propagated to achieve its potential. And some of the sections of the church are obsessed about preserving the gospel. The best way to preserve it is to propagate it and to preach it. But I want to suggest to you tonight, not just we need to preach the gospel of the kingdom in Holy Spirit power, but we actually need not just to win souls, but make disciples. I'm really not hair splitting tonight, and I haven't this completely all ironed out myself, okay? But I I decided this week to watch a documentary that I'd watched maybe a couple of years ago and deeply impacted me at the time, and I think I may have watched it once since. But I felt in the lead-up to this message that I was to watch it again. And boy, I'm glad I did. And on Tuesday night, I sat down. The house was quiet, everybody was out. And it's about an hour and 50 minutes long, and I highly recommend this to you if you haven't watched it before. It's called Sheep Among Wolves. And it's the second of the documentaries. There's one and two. I haven't watched one, so I can't say anything about it. But it's Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. You need to watch it. It's about the underground church in parts of the world, particularly in the Middle East and um, in Iran. And it's all about how simple discipleship, one person bringing one person 
is changing the nation. And when you watch this documentary, there's a guy with, with a, a muffled voice, so as you don't recognize who he is, one of the, the, the Iranian Christians saying, what would you think if, if we told you that Islam was dead in Iran? If we told you that the mosques were empty in Iran? He says, that's the way it is. That's actually the way it is. And Iran is the fastest growing church in the whole world. We don't hear this in the news. But at the beginning of, of the film, there is this caption that comes up, and it says this. The Iranian awakening is a rapidly reproducing discipleship movement. A rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that owns no property or buildings. The established churches disappeared. No Christian buildings. It owns no property or buildings, has no central leadership. So there's no, I don't want to offend anybody, but there's no pope, there's no archbishops, there's no president, there's no superintendent, there's none of these things. Moderator. Yeah, moderator. There's none of those things. And I'm not despising, I'm just saying they don't have it, but something's happening. And listen, and is predominantly led by women. You think about that for a moment. Iran is probably one of the most difficult places in the world to be a woman. And God decides to lead a revival through women. And I could go into that a lot tonight. We won't let the women do anything in half of our churches. But that's a whole other subject. This is when God starts to do things. He turns the tables, doesn't he? But what's happening in Iran in particular, and this is what the documentary is a lot about, is these, what they call DMMs, disciple-making movements. And it's not just one organization. There's several organizations, but it's not even an organization. It's a concept. These disciple-making movements are exploding all around Iran, and they're exploding all around the, the, the Middle East and indeed closed societies. And it's harnessing the power of making disciples rather than simply converts. And this is revolutionary to our Western concept in the church because they don't convert people in order to disciple them. That's what we do. Get them converted and then we'll disciple them. They disciple them to get them converted. Now that's going to scramble some of your heads because... Um, you never thought you could be a disciple and not know Jesus. But you can. You, you look at the passage that we read together today in John chapter 1. These guys, Jesus just said, just follow me. Just follow me. And they said, where do you live? Come and see. And they were disciples before they were believers. This is what they're doing. They're befriending people. They're starting to talk to them. Invest in them. But they're discipling to convert. Just like we saw in John 1. And they aren't planting churches. They are making disciples. And they're finding out that if you make disciples, guess what you also make? Churches. Because where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. As far as I'm concerned, that's what a church is. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe that we may see again in our nation our stadia filled with people seeking God. I believe we may see that. But I just wonder if that's what we're desiring or that's what we're striving for, if we're actually missing what God's actually doing. And the greatest revival that has ever taken place in the history of mankind has been in China. And you'll not see a stadium filled with uh, people and a big evangelist preaching and an altar call there. They're not allowed to worship effectively and evangelize in that manner. What we've seen there in the greatest revival of all time is a revival that we are not familiar with. It's underground. It's not big rallies. But it's one-to-one discipleship and it's almost by stealth. It's under the devil's nose and he doesn't know what's happening. Now, Iran and China and all their Middle Eastern closed countries have been forced into this kind of evangelism by persecution. In fact, on that documentary, someone was heard to say, persecution in Iran destroyed the church that didn't make disciples. Wow, think about that. And maybe I'm prophesying when I say that the churches here that don't make disciples, they're not going to survive the cold wind that is coming. Now, we're not being persecuted, no matter what your mate on Facebook says. We are not being persecuted here in Ireland. But we are living in a post-Christian society and culture. And it is anti-Christian to a large degree. And the atmosphere of our culture in the West is changing. And it is starting to become a cold house for Christians. But what if that's God's will? On that documentary, one of the contributors tells of a pastor and his wife who escaped from Iran to the United States. God bless America. Amen, Mitch. And after a relatively short time, the wife wanted to go back to Iran. And the husband pastor said to her, Are you mad? You could be murdered. You could be raped. This is happening regular to Christian women. And any, all women, not all women, but a lot of women, all kinds of women in Iran. You don't just have to be Christian. There's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of misogyny. Why would you want to go back to that? And this is what she said. And you listen to these words. She said, there is a satanic lullaby in this country. And I feel I'm going asleep. Now, I think there's a satanic lullaby here and I'm probably half asleep, if not more. And we are not yet being forced by persecution to do what these believers are doing. But I wonder what might happen if we actually preemptively 
chose being provoked by the example of underground Christians to just do it the way Jesus did it. And one bring one and disciple one and bring them to your house and disciple them. Before you know it, you would have a church. And I know I'll get into trouble with people saying what the church is and what it's not. But I'm past all that because this is life support we're talking about here. The church is very close. This sounds ridiculous in Ulster and Ireland with the heritage we've had. But we are closer to our relevance than you could ever imagine if we're not already there. I'm not talking about extinction. I'm talking about irrelevance. But what if we chose? And I have a hunch. Okay? I believe it's more than a hunch. That the next move of God is not going to be personality driven. I wonder where any of them ever but people latch on to a particular personality the way we do. Because even in 1859, the guy that was in here got a name and other people got a name. And even the guys in the schoolhouse got a name. But it was actually lay-led by the new converts of the revival. Nobody knows their names. But anyway, I don't think it's going to be personality-driven. I'm going to tell you something else. God, if he was ever started with it, he's finished with celebrity Christianity. Thank, thank you, Lord. Because I can't do that stuff. <laughs> I'm too ordinary for that. But he's finished with that. It's going to be movement-driven. People-driven. Ordinary people-driven. And this is what it's going to be, I believe. I'm just quoting from them. A rapidly reproducing discipleship movement that owns no property or buildings, has no central leadership, and will be predominantly led by women. I believe it will be. That might be the stumbling block to the church, because usually there is a stumbling block that the church rejects it. That may well be it. But I believe God's... I'm saying this is going to come. It's already started. All over the world. It's just not really happening so much here. I wonder is it not happening so much here because we're hankering after something that was and the way that it was and wanting the Lord to do that again when the Lord's already started something else somewhere. And like Jonathan Edwards once says, once said, don't ask God to bless what you're doing, but look to where the Redeemer is at work. Look to where he's at work and go and do what he's doing. We need to get back to preaching the gospel of the kingdom and the power of the Spirit, but we need to make disciples and we need to think again about doing differently. But it's actually not differently. It's getting back to the original blueprint. Let's pray. And just before I lead you in prayer for a moment, I just want to put my hands up right away and say, you know, guilty as charged. I am not an evangelist. 
I, I feel that I'm called to do the work of an evangelist at times, but I'm not an evangelist, but I'm not evangelistic enough, and I don't have a heart for the lost the way Mitch does, the way many of you do here tonight. So I'm not preaching down at you at all. I know my deficiencies, my shortcomings in this area. But I, I, I need the Lord to stir up my heart. I need, to give, I need to, him to give me his agape love for the lost, for the broken, for the outcasts. And he and I have that conversation, so he knows. So would you come with me in prayer now, in that, in that contrite humility, wherever you're at on that spectrum, maybe you're with me and feel really far short of where you ought to be. Or maybe you do have a, more of a passion for those who are broken and lost. But you know you need more. And I mean, there's nobody here tonight that doesn't need that baptism of fire and doesn't need it afresh. I don't care what you had 10, 15, 20, 40 years ago. We need to continually be being filled by the Holy Spirit. So my prayer is, and we're going to hand over to Simon and then Mitch is going to lead it from there on in. It's in the words of Don Moan, Father of creation, unfold your sovereign plan, raise up a chosen generation that will march through this land. All of creation is longing for your unveiling of power. Would you release your anointing, O God, and let this be the hour, ruler of the nations, the world is yet to see, the full release of your promise, the church in victory. Turn to us, Lord, and touch us. Turn to us, Lord, and touch us. Make us strong in your might. Overcome our weakness that we could stand up and fight. Let your glory fall in this room. And let it go forth from here to the nations. Let your fragrance rest in this place. As we gather now to seek your faith.